I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, here's some news. You can now listen to our show and its four seasons worth of archives ad-free on Amazon Music. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. We were told by all the big movie moguls in Hollywood that people just wouldn't sit still for an hour and a half of cartoons. Disney animator Ward Kimball. Walt Disney came up with a name for his mouse. Mortimer. Mortimer Mouse. But though the drawing was brand new, the name was not. Back in Kansas City, Disney had spent many a night sleeping at his office to save on rent and bathing at the local train station. And as cartoon lore goes, along his travels, he'd come across many mice one of which he'd trapped in a tin and affectionately named Mortimer. But when Disney arrived home from New York that fateful night and showed his new bride his new idea, Lillian Disney didn't like it. Well, she liked the mouse. She didn't like its name. Mortimer. Mortimer. She thought it was a wimpy name, Mortimer. 
So Disney went back to the drawing board, or rather the scrap piece of train stationery on which he'd scribbled the cartoon rodent. And soon he came up with another option. It was an Irish name. As Disney put it, an outsider's name. He wondered what she thought about Mickey. Lillian said, well, she liked it more than Mortimer. And that was good enough for Disney. He'd call his mouse Mickey. Mickey Mouse. Disney brought Mickey to his company, or what was left of it. Most of his employees had defected under the coup of Charles Mintz. Only a few faithful animators remained, one of whom was Disney's friend, a childhood friend named Ub Iwerks. As Disney was still contractually obligated under Mintz to fulfill the remainder of the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons, his studios remained a risky place to foster new ideas. Too many eyes, too little trust. So Disney and Iwerks plugged away on Oswald all day. Then, when the clock struck five, they, along with their most trusted creatives, left the office separately and gathered for a clandestine meeting in Disney's garage. The plan was simple. If Disney wanted to keep Walt Disney Studios from going under, he needed something bigger than Oswald, better than Oswald, to pitch to distributors. Fast. So iWorks got to work. The powerhouse animator squeaked out 700 Mickey drawings a day, perched on a bench in Disney's garage. As biographer Neil Gabler tells the story in his book, Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination, iWorks described those earliest Mickey iterations like this. His body was shaped like a pear with a ball on top and a couple thin stick legs below. If his ears were too long, he veered into rabbit territory. Too short, and he was a cat. Too floppy, and he was a dog. So they settled on two circular ears and an elongated nose. Once iWorks drawings were complete, they were then passed assembly line style to Lillian Disney, who painted them. She then passed the inky cells onto their one-man camera crew to capture each frame. The team of 12 worked all night, every night. They ate pot roasts and stews, which Lillian Disney says luckily were cheap in those days. Gabler writes, They were struggling so hard. A major budget crisis was when Lillian tripped on the stairs to the garage, and ruined her last pair of silk stockings. Disney would call his first Mickey short film Plain Crazy. In it, our protagonist, Mickey Mouse, builds his very own airplane, but promptly crashes it into a tree. As he builds another out of a car and some turkey tail feathers... We meet Mickey's love interest, Minnie Mouse. Minnie offers her daring darling a horseshoe for good luck, 
and Mickey and Minnie embark on a perilous airborne adventure. Plane Crazy costs just shy of $1,800 to make, or just shy of $30,000 in today's dollars. And as soon as it was complete, Disney wasted no time securing meetings with theaters. He convinced theater owners to screen his short before their feature films to test audience reactions. When reactions were positive, he'd talk to owners about buying the cartoon. But there were no takers. So Disney approached distributors, hoping to get Mickey in front of studios. And one distributor thought it was good enough to show the president of Metro Pictures. Disney was thrilled. This was it. He planned his fees for the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer forerunner. $3,000 apiece. He saw visions of Mickey flying all over Hollywood. But one week later, Disney got word from the distributor. Metro Pictures wasn't plain crazy. They decided against pursuing Mickey Mouse. So Disney went back to his garage, where his team of creatives was eagerly awaiting their fearless leader's next move. There were no takers for his first Disney film. There was no money to pay his staff. So Walt Disney made a shocking announcement. They were going to produce another Mickey short. But this one would be different. This time, he wanted sound. Walt Disney was not the first artist to consider the possibility of marrying animation with audio, but he was certainly among the pioneers. Up until the year 1928, everything Disney had come up with was silent and black and white, as was the cartoon custom. Moviegoers had never heard sound come out of drawings before. There was chatter that it would be weird, off-putting. But Disney forged ahead. There would be no dialogue, just sound effects and music. This Mickey short would be called Steamboat Willie. In Steamboat Willie, Mickey Mouse is a mischievous deckhand, whistling away as he steers a steamboat down a river. But when his sweetheart, Minnie, loses her beloved ukulele... Mickey takes it upon himself to turn everything on the boat into an instrument. Pots, pans, garbage cans. He even plays the teeth of a cow like a xylophone. As biographer Neil Gabler underscores, Steamboat Willie wasn't just a cartoon with music. It was a musical cartoon. In a few short weeks, they had written the storyline, drawn the characters, painted the cells, and soon they were timing sound effects, tapping pencils, playing harmonica, and whistling, perfectly in sync with Mickey's moves. They screened the film for friends and family, and by the final frame, their tiny test audience was begging for an encore. It was exhilarating. So Disney printed new business cards that read, Sound Cartoons. And he took out a second mortgage on Walt Disney Studios. 
Disney continued pounding the pavement looking for a distributor for Mickey. He went back to Metro Pictures, this time with sound to offer. But they rejected him. So Disney approached the folks over at Universal Studios. They couldn't get enough of Steamboat Willie. The executives practically doubling over laughing throughout the screening. But in the end, Universal rejected Disney's pitch. They felt sound was too green a gamble. So Disney approached Film Booking Offices, or FBO, a mid-sized film studio of the era. But FBO also rejected Disney. So Disney met with Paramount. But as Gabler tells the story, Disney took Mickey from distributor to distributor, sat in the projection room while the cartoon screened, peering through the portholes to see the executives' reactions, only to be told they would be in touch if they were interested. So Disney instructed his brother Roy to march over to the bank and get a loan, specifically, quote, as large a loan as possible. When that wasn't enough, Disney sold his car. At this point, money wasn't just tight. It was non-existent. Disney traveled to New York. He started pitching Steamboat Willie to studios, distributors, and theater owners along the East Coast. But two months went by, and nothing. It was the same as Los Angeles. He'd drum up interest, praise, then rejection. But just as Disney's once steely confidence began to wane, a stranger tossed him a line. He was the manager of a New York theater called The Colony. He'd slipped into a Steamboat Willie screening and liked what he saw. So he offered to show the cartoon in his theater before the feature film for two weeks for a cool $500. Disney countered $1,000 for the run. Sold. And on November 18, 1928, Steamboat Willie made its official debut. Walt Disney attended every single showing of Steamboat Willie across its two-week run. He sat in the back and he listened intently, not to his revolutionary synchronized sound blaring through the speakers, but to the audience around him. He heard the corners of mouths upturn as Whistling Mickey first filled the screen. He made notes of the chuckles, when and for how long. And to his delight, the audience was a symphony. Steamboat Willie was a triumph. Moviegoers loved it, and positive reviews started trickling in. Variety wrote at the time that the cartoon represented a high order of ingenuity, cleverly combined with sound effects, adding, Giggles came so fast at the colony, they were stumbling over each other. And that wasn't all. Suddenly, distributors were stumbling over each other to get a meeting with this Walt Disney fellow. 
some of them the very distributors that had already rejected Disney several times over. But while many of them wanted the distribution rights to Mickey, they also wanted something else. Ownership of Walt Disney Studios. After Mintz Gate 1928, Disney had decided he would never, ever again relinquish control of his company. So Disney came back with a counteroffer, a 60-40 split of Mickey's profits in Disney's favor. But every interested distributor suddenly lost interest. Eventually, Disney managed to land a modest deal where a few regional theaters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Illinois would show his Mickeys. But as Disney's company continued to churn out those Mickeys, Disney decided it unwise to be dependent on a singular character, like he had once done with Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. It was too much pressure on Mickey's tiny shoulders. So he started working on a new cartoon. He'd call it Silly Symphony. Silly Symphony would be totally different from the Mickey series. In fact, there would be no repeat characters. Each episode would be a one-off with a fresh story and a fresh star, like a duck named Donald. Disney screened his first Silly Symphony for distributors, and they all loved it. So much so, one called it, without exception, one of the cleverest things he'd ever seen. Between Mickey and Silly Symphony, Walt Disney Studios was producing over 35 cartoons in a calendar year. Disney insisted on hiring only the best animators. Their staff was growing, but their revenue was not. So Disney took a major pay cut, paying his new animators double his own salary. His regional distributors were showing his Mickey cartoons regularly, but it wasn't enough. So Disney went back to his original plan to get his cartoons under the nose of a major studio. Disney met with executives over at what was now called Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And as Gabler tells the story, the executives remembered Disney as a tall, shy youth in a shabby suit whose apprehensive glance told very clearly of many past disappointments. As the suits took their seats, Disney apologized in advance for the animation being imperfect. Then... He rolled the Mickey film. And the executives, expecting something one would feel the need to pre-apologize for, had to pick their jaws up off the floor. Mickey Mouse was ingenious. One of the execs immediately ran down the hall to grab Louis B. Mayer, the mayor in Metro Goldwyn Mayer, and he ushered the studio giant into the screening room where Disney was about to roll the projector on his next cartoon, Silly Symphony. But only a few seconds in, Mayer declared the cartoon 
aptly titled. It was silly, no, ridiculous, and Mayer got up to leave. So the flustered executives quickly switched the film back to the Mickey short, the one that prompted them to rush down the hall and grab Mayer in the first place. But Mayer didn't like that one either. In fact, he, quote, demanded the film be stopped immediately. And that's when Mayer revealed his biggest and most serious concern, that pregnant women see MGM films, and that women in general are terrified of mice, let alone 10-foot-tall mice. Mayer stood up, walked out of the room, and slammed the door behind him. A shy, tall Walt in his shabby suit just stood there, mortified. We'll be right back. Hey, did you know Apostrophe has a YouTube channel? You can listen to We Regret to Inform You and Under the Influence anytime. Just tap the link in this episode's description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss In spite of Mayer's misgivings 
word about Walt Disney's ingenious cartoons began spreading rapidly around Tinseltown. And one executive over at the brand new Columbia Pictures caught a screening. If he was being honest with himself, he wasn't exactly thrilled about spending his afternoon watching a cartoon. But when he saw Silly Symphony, he knew he had to bring it to his boss. The head of Columbia also wondered why he was about to watch a cartoon. But like his executive, he quickly realized he'd just witnessed something revolutionary. Columbia would buy one Silly Symphony per month for $5,000 each, or $85,000 today. That money would allow Walt Disney Studios to keep its lights on and continue paying its staff. So Disney got to work producing more Silly Symphonies. But little did he know, across town, a group of superfans was forming. They call themselves the Mickey Mouse Club. The manager of a movie theater in Los Angeles had an idea one afternoon. He'd noticed how popular his pre-show Mickey Mouse cartoons were becoming with the children in his audience. So he decided to invite those children and their parents to his theater one Saturday afternoon to watch Mickey matinees, play Mickey music, and talk all things Mickey. And it was a hit. The Mickey Mouse Club even had its own Mickey Mouse pledge. And soon, more clubs started popping up across the city. 1,200 at this theater, 1,300 at another. Then they started popping up throughout the state. Then, before Disney knew it, there were 800 Mickey Mouse Club chapters across the country, with one million members and counting. For reference, that was more than the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts combined. Soon, people started lining up outside theaters for hours on end to see the Mickey cartoons. Owners had to start turning patrons away. Different chapters began getting together, forming conventions, parades. Columbia took out a full-page ad in Film Daily, the first daily newspaper solely about movies, calling Mickey the most popular character in screendom. And within three weeks, 30,000 fan letters flooded the Walt Disney Studio offices. With that momentum, Disney launched a Mickey Mouse comic strip, syndicated in 40 newspapers across 22 countries. And so began the world of Mickey Mouse merchandise. By the early 1930s, one million separate audiences saw Mickey cartoons each year. Soon, Mickey even appeared in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Competitors began attempting to put out their versions of Mickey Mouse, including Charles Mintz, who released Crazy Cat, a black-and-white feline with big eyes and white gloves. 
Disney's company was growing again, which meant he needed more office space, more studio space, more equipment, more staff, more everything. And that meant money became, once again, tight. Roy Disney was forced to get another loan from the bank. This time, as large a loan as possible meant $25,000. $25,000 to keep the entire Disney company afloat. But with competitors nipping at Mickey's tail, instead of scaling back, instead of treading cautiously, Disney wanted more. Disney wanted color. Color cartoons were three times more expensive to produce than black and white. In 1930, most live-action movies weren't even filmed in color yet. But Disney heard about a company called Technicolor, which specialized in color film. So he halted his latest silly symphony called Flowers and Trees mid-production. He scrubbed the gray shading from every cell and proceeded to fill them in with bright colors. Roy Disney was vehemently opposed to this change, but Walt Disney could not, would not be dissuaded. Like his insistence that Walt Disney Studios become pioneers in sound, together with Technicolor, he would also lead the charge in color. Disney was so pleased with the flowers and trees that he invited his most connected Hollywood friends to come take a look. One of those friends loved it so much, he connected Disney to one of his friends, the owner of Hollywood Boulevard's TCL Chinese Theater. That theater was set to host the premiere of a big Hollywood film, MGM's Strange Interlude. And Disney's silly flowers and trees would make the perfect prelude. Everyone from movie lovers to the Hollywood elite flooded the theater that night. And the theater owner declared Disney's short a creation of genius that marks a new milestone in cinematic development. That year, Flowers and Trees would win Best Animated Short at the 5th Annual Academy Awards. Winning an Academy Award for his short film was an incredible achievement, mind-boggling. Except for Disney, it meant he'd kind of gone as far as one could go in the world of shorts. He noticed Mickey Mouse Club members would often watch multiple Mickey Mouse shorts in a row. And it gave Disney a thought. What if he made a feature-length cartoon? Snow White was a fairy tale penned by the kings of fairy tales, the Brothers Grimm, in 1812. Nearly a century later, in 1902, it was adapted for the first time into a black-and-white, live-action, silent film. Then it was adapted for the stage in 1912. Disney recalled seeing one of these adaptations as a child, and it leaving a mark. It was known, 
It was full of characters. It was beloved. So Disney secured the rights to the story, and in 1933, declared himself ready to take a stab at his own color cartoon adaptation. In Disney's biography, the animator is quoted as saying, "I had sympathetic dwarfs. I had the heavy. I had the prince and the girl. The romance, and the story also offered the lure of memory." But while Disney plotted out each frame of his feature film debut, others had misgivings. Here were some of the questions posed to Walt Disney when he announced the plans for his first ever feature-length cartoon film. Would anyone in their right mind sit through a 60-minute cartoon? Why would anyone pay a dime just to stare at animated dwarves? What would it look like to have voices and dialogue coming from the mouths of cartoon characters? Would audiences connect to animated characters deeply enough to remain emotionally invested in an entire narrative arc? Would staring at color cartoons for that long give people headaches, hurt their eyes? Was a cartoon feature even technically possible? Could they afford to produce a feature film? Could Disney pull it off? One animator called the idea "Walt's Folly," a thinly veiled play on one of Disney's Mickey shorts called "Mickey's Follies." Lillian Disney thought it was a terrible idea. But as biographer Neil Gabler tells the story, in winter of 1934, Disney approached 50 of his staff, and he offered them each 50 cents to buy themselves dinner across the street if they agreed to meet him after work at the soundstage. When the satisfied but confused employees arrived at the soundstage that evening, they were greeted by their boss standing downstage. Under a bright yellow spotlight, that night, Disney told his staff they were about to embark on their biggest project to date—a full-length feature cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Then Disney proceeded to walk them through every scene, every frame from the stage, acting out each character, each voice, each line of dialogue. Each cut, each fade, each idea he had about how they would tackle every question, every doubt that was hurled in their direction, galvanizing his staff to jump alongside him and make history. It's said Disney's performance that night totaled three hours, and it was quote spellbinding. Over the next three years, that single performance by Disney would sustain his animators, his artists, his camera crew, his accountants across what would be an arduous, expensive leap of faith. Disney employed new camera techniques to give the cells an almost 3D appearance. This, of course, was more time-consuming and more expensive. His staff worked nearly 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and Disney kept borrowing more and more money. 
Soon their loans totaled nearly three quarters of a million dollars. It's said Roy Disney tried to rein in Walt's spending, and when he couldn't, he froze in terror. Disney said he not only mortgaged his offices, his home, but Mickey's and Donald's as well. The film was set to premiere by Christmas of 1937, but by mid-November, it still wasn't finished. Disney going over every frame with a fine-toothed comb. Meanwhile, they were still producing Mickey's and Sillies, their only main source of revenue. Disney's debt was mounting. They crossed the $1 million mark. Then, on December 6th, final photography wrapped. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was complete. On December 21st, 1937, Disney's first feature-length film premiered at the Carthay Circle Theatre in Hollywood. Anticipation was high as 1,500 people found their seats. Disney was anxious. What if people didn't connect emotionally to cartoon characters? What if he'd just spent $1 million on a flop? What if it was Walt's folly? The theater lights dimmed, Disney grabbed Lillian's hand, and the second the opening titles began, the audience began vibrating with excitement. Disney watched as they hung on every word coming out of his cartoon's mouths, erupting in spontaneous applause, even when no characters were on screen. But it wasn't until the final scenes that Disney heard the best sound of all. When Snow White took a bite out of the poisoned apple, he heard sniffles. When the credits appeared on the screen, the audience erupted into a, quote, thunderous ovation. But for 38-year-old Disney, those sniffles would be the greatest sound of all. Proof that people could connect emotionally to cartoon characters, that there was a future here for his work for Walt Disney Studios. Critics raved about Snow White as the film made its way to theaters all across the country, calling it a masterpiece. The film screened in 49 countries in 10 different languages, selling millions of units of merchandise. And by 1939, the film that cost a whopping $1 million to make had grossed $6.7 million making it the highest-grossing American film, not just cartoon, but film, up until that point. Disney not only paid off every cent of his company's debt, he awarded his hard-working staff $750,000 worth of bonuses. And at the 1938 Oscars... Snow White and the Seven Dwarves would bring home eight Academy Awards in honor of the film's significant screen innovation, which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field for the motion picture cartoon. One full-size statue 
and seven mini statuettes. In the ten years following Snow White, Disney released Bambi, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Fantasia, Cinderella, Peter Pan, and in homage to his first ever short films, a feature length Alice in Wonderland. In 1949, Disney began work on his first ever live action film, Treasure Island. In 1950, Disney began his foray into television, and in 1955, he opened the gates to his craziest idea of all: Disneyland. In 1964, Disney was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Lyndon B. Johnson. Then, in December of 1966, Walt Disney passed away. Just after his 65th birthday, that year alone, 240 million people saw a Disney movie, 80 million people bought Disney merchandise, and nearly seven million visited his theme park. And the man, labeled the second dumbest in class, who was fired from the local paper for lacking creativity. Who was told drawing wasn't a legitimate career? Whose first company went bankrupt? Who almost lost his second company to a bad business deal? Who was rejected by Universal, FBO, MGM, and countless distributors? Who was told no one would sit through a feature-length cartoon? That cartoons with sound, with color, weren't even possible. And who arrived in Hollywood with forty dollars in his pocket, built a one hundred and fifty-three billion dollar empire. At successful people, we often marvel at the risks they took along the way. Like when Walt Disney quit his Kansas City job to start his own animation company, even though he had no money, or when he moved to Los Angeles with just forty dollars in his pocket, or when he went into debt to bring sound to Mickey Mouse, or when he went even further into debt to bring color to his films, or deciding to make a feature-length animated movie. A venture everyone said would fail, but Walt ignored their disapproval and went one million dollars in debt. Yet, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs would turn out to be an incredibly profitable, Oscar-winning landmark motion picture. But with all the risks Walt Disney took, he avoided the biggest, scariest, most dreaded risk of all. The risk of playing it safe. At every one of the inflection points in his career, Disney chose to ignore conventional wisdom. At any one of those crossroads, he could have stopped pushing and settled for a humble but steady living, but he never did. 
Malcolm Gladwell has said that the trait all entrepreneurs share in common is not an appetite for risk, but rather a passionate belief they are on to a sure thing. And that was Walt Disney. He was convinced his animation could revolutionize the industry, that sound and color and two-hour storylines could be brought artfully to cartoons. There are a lot of people in this world who feel they never achieved success, never realized their true potential and sit in the dark marinating in a midlife crisis. But the majority of them played it safe. Walt Disney took a different view. He believed all the adversity, all the troubles, and all the obstacles he faced actually strengthened him. That a kick in the teeth could actually be the best thing that ever happened to you. Walt Disney once said, It's kind of fun to do the impossible. And here's a fun fact. Nobody has ever done the impossible by playing it safe. Never, ever give up. World records held by Walt Disney to this day. Most Oscars won by an individual, 32. Most Oscar nominations for an individual, 59. Most Oscar wins by an individual in a single year, 4. Most Oscar nominations in the most consecutive years, 19. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. We don't regret to inform you. Our director is Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Tunes provided by APM Music. The major source for this episode is Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination by Neil Gabler. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Colonel Sanders from Season 3. Kentucky Fried Chicken is the most popular chicken chain of all time, with 25,000 locations in 145 countries. But before the world tasted Colonel Sanders' secret recipe of 11 different herbs and spices— The colonel was broke, at 65, driving around the South pitching his recipes to restaurant owners and weathering over 1,000 rejections. That is, until he got some unbelievable news. You can follow our network on social at apostrophe pod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
Only from Rustolium. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.